I mean, the idea when Bitcoin first came along was that you were taking the power away from the governments and the banks. Where there were internal conflicts in those countries uh, and the international community decided to help. And I can remember them coming back very thin and yellow and very weary of fighting. Welcome to the ninth and final episode of the second series of the Dyson House podcast from the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. I'm your host, Cameron Christie. This week, I'm joined by Barbara Keyes. Barbara is an historian of international affairs and associate professor of history at the University of Melbourne. She's the author of two books, Reclaiming American Virtue and Globalizing Sport. And in 2019, she'll serve as the president of the Society of Historians of American Foreign Relations. We discuss human rights and sports diplomacy. Barbara Keyes, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Cameron. So perhaps to start, if you could tell us a bit about yourself and your work. I'm a historian of international relations, and I'm interested primarily in how international affairs is shaped by idealism and by ordinary people or social movements. So that uh, led me first to a book on international sports competitions and then to a book on human rights movements, which may seem like two completely different topics, but actually they're both united by this focus on ordinary people trying to make the world a better place. Uh, our focus for today will, of course, be human rights. So let's start with the really obvious question. How do we define human rights and how should we be thinking about them? Well, the idea behind human rights is that all human beings, by virtue of their humanity, have certain fundamental and inalienable rights. There's nothing you can do as a person to make yourself unfit for human rights. All human rights adhere to all humans at all times. The debate, of course, is about which rights should be universal human rights, and especially which ones matter most, because oftentimes human rights come into conflict with one another, and you have to prioritize some above others. Just to give you one extreme example, we might wish to protect a particular group against genocide. But we might decide to do that by launching a humanitarian war that's going to violate the rights of some people, their right to life, in order to protect the right to life of another group. Or we could just impose sanctions. Sanctions would violate access to economic rights for some people, again, in order to protect other rights for other people. So the 1948 UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights includes lots of things I think probably most people would agree are pretty standard. Uh, ban on slavery, prohibition on torture, uh, freedom of thought, freedom of religion, but also things that at least uh, my uh, compatriots in America might not agree should be universal human rights. The right to an adequate level of health care or the right to join a union. So that's, there's certainly certain rights that not everybody agrees on. And at what stage in our history does an understanding of human rights first gain prominence? Well, Cameron, you are asking one of the thorniest questions in <laughs> the study of human rights today. Scholars very nearly come to blow over this. Um, so some scholars think that human rights are rooted in the deep past and that they've been around for a very long time. That you might point to the Magna Carta, you might point to the French and American revolutions. Others claim that our conception of human rights is quite new and that it really only comes into force after the Second World War. 
And this might seem like a pretty esoteric debate to the, to the general public. Uh, but as a leading s scholar of international uh, human rights has said, um, this is Philip Alston, former Melbourne Uni uh, scholar, he has called it a, a debate that is really over the soul of human rights. Because if human rights are long and deep and have always existed or have existed for centuries, then they're going to be very hard to uproot. Then their legitimacy will be very strong. If they're a recent invention, on the other hand, then you can imagine that it would be much easier to say that they should be replaced with some new form of idealism. So just to give you one uh, brief example of why it is that some scholars would say that the French and American revolutions, for example, were not about human rights, or not about the human rights that we think of as universal human rights today. Uh, the French and American revolutions certainly talked a lot about rights. They talked about natural rights, but they involved exclusion. So they weren't about humanity, but they were about the citizens of a particular nation. They involved an appeal to nature, but not to international law. And our current system is really all about what we've embodied in international legal standards. And rights in the French and American revolutions were about creating sovereignty. They were about demanding a better state, whereas rights today are about international authorities going in and telling states uh, to improve their human rights situations. I suppose moving on to the state then, to, to what extent do considerations of human rights shape interactions between states and how has this in particular evolved over time? Well, according to international legal scholars at the beginning of the 20th century, what they called the, the rights of man had no place in international relations or international law because international law was about relations among states and it had nothing to do with individuals. The basic principle was that Nations were sovereign within their own territories, and they could do what they wanted to their own citizens. International relations were about what nations did in the international sphere, not in the domestic sphere. And what happens over the course of the 20th century, particularly after the Second World War, is a, is a striking, really enormous transformation whereby the fundamental rights of the individual become a matter of international law and become a matter of international relations. And international law begins to offer avenues of redress if countries don't protect their citizens' rights. And by the 1970s, there begins to be quite a significant shift away from the doctrine of national sovereignty as inviolable toward the view that when extreme cases occur and there are extreme violations of human rights, other countries actually have an obligation, an international legal obligation, to step in and do something, even if it means interfering in the domestic affairs of other countries. So it would be fair to say then that we're at a stage now where adherence to the principles of, of human rights are of quite a high level of importance um, when it comes to relations between states. Yes, uh, and this shift really begins in the in the 1970s. It's it's um, it's something that's embodied in the UN Charter, because the UN Charter says that all states should uh, protect human rights. That all states have an obligation to protect human rights, but it also has a provision that says that nothing in the Charter uh, 
should authorize the United Nations to intervene in the domestic affairs of other states. So there's a tension in the UN Charter that really doesn't seriously shift toward uh, toward intervention and away from national sovereignty until the 1970s. And it does so really under the onslaught of lots of really um, high publicity human rights abuses that are occurring in places like Chile and Argentina, Brazil, um, Greece, where lots of people are being tortured and there's a lot of publicity about uh, about the torture of, of very sympathetic victims. And this leads countries, Western countries in particular, to take the view that uh, particularly because a lot of this is being done by Western allies, that they have an obligation to step in and push those allies to reform their practices. And indeed, they, they start to look at the, the UN Charter in a different light and to say, actually, this obliges us to step in. When abuses have reached a certain level, we cannot simply stand by. And at the end of the 1970s, Jimmy Carter says, actually, human rights need to be a consideration in foreign policy, not just national security, not just economics, but human rights has to have a place too. He says human rights has to be the soul of American foreign policy. And in the late 1970s, that's a very powerful and appealing message. So I've seen a, a document in the Australian archives, for example, in which Australian diplomats are saying, well, we have to we have to start talking about human rights and foreign policy too. And this is happening actually in foreign ministries around the world. People say, this is this is right. We have to have a moral thread to our foreign policy, and it has to be framed in terms of human rights. I'd be interested to know how proponents of human rights have what mechanisms they've employed in order to facilitate that change in attitudes? Well, the presumption behind that question is that it's activists who change the minds of government officials. Hmm. And I think that's partly true. It's certainly the case that in the 1970s, activists like Amnesty International and like Latin American exiles fleeing the abuses in their own countries who publicized them in the West they brought these kind of abuses to attention and made them matter to the public, to the Western public in particular. I think the origins of a government interest in human rights has more to do with a kind of self-interest, ironically, in the sense that especially after the Vietnam War, the United States is tarnished morally. And... Western countries feel tarnished too, even if they've opposed, even if their publics have opposed the war. They feel like the Vietnam War, because it was an unjust war fought in unjust ways, that it's tarnished the whole concept of the free world. So governments are looking for some kind of redeeming feature, some kind of redeeming language that they can use to say, actually, we're not the bad guys. We do care about morality and idealism, and we are looking to make the world better, and human rights is, is a really useful tool for doing that at that particular time. Another focus of, of your work has, of course, been sports diplomacy, and I, I would like to spend some time on that today. Um, again, let's, let's start with a simple question. What is sports diplomacy, and, and how important is this, as well as other forms of 
um, social interaction in, in, in encouraging uh, the adoption of more liberalised uh, sentiments and forms of government? Well, sports diplomacy can be a lot of different things. It's broadly defined as the use of sport as a tool of diplomacy. It can be used by governments or it can be used by private actors hoping to influence governments. And it often is a very useful tool for diplomacy precisely because, in in an ironic sense, because it claims to be apolitical. So sport officials and sport enthusiasts claim that their world exists apart from politics. And that makes it really useful as a political tool because it gives you some cover. You can pretend that you're not being political, even though sport is international sports are always political. I think the best example that we saw very recently was at the Pyeongchang Olympics in South Korea. And it was really because the Olympics seemed to offer an idealized space, free from politics, ostensibly devoted to the furtherance of peace. That's what allowed North and South Korea to use those Olympic Games as a vehicle for a rapprochement that would otherwise have been quite difficult to stage. So the fact that um, we can pretend that international sport is separate from politics can make it particularly useful for certain kinds of politics, particularly for bringing antagonists together. And there are indeed lots of behind-the-scenes diplomatic uh, endeavors going on at international sports events that we don't know about. I'll be very curious in 30 years to be looking through the archives to find traces of these uh, because, say, at the Olympics, for example, you have all these venues that are accessible only to members of the Olympic family, the, the high-profile people. These are CEOs like Bill Gates. Uh, they're people like Henry Kissinger. They're prime ministers. Uh, these are people who have, who have passes to these, to these venues that are outside the purview of the public and the press and where they can network and make connections that they might have difficulty doing in other places and other times. It's a per- perfect opportunity for the global elite to network. Now, you also asked about the spread of democratization. Um, actually, I think human rights and the Olympic Games have, have different uh, effects there. For the Olympic Games, it's hard to say that they've played any particular role in spreading liberal democracy. We've seen recently, in the case of Sochi, in the 2014 Winter Olympic Games, in the case of Beijing, 2008 Olympic Games, that uh, and, and Qatar, the 2022 FIFA Men's World Cup, that these international sports events are quite conducive to being used by dictatorships to further their own aims, both at home, to increase their domestic legitimacy, and abroad to show that they're competent and capable and to be used as propaganda to enhance their image. I'm wondering, I mean, do we know specifically at what stage um, sports diplomacy begins to take shape? I think it's been present since the beginning, since about the late 19th century. The late 19th century is approximately when we begin to see international sports competitions. 
And governments almost immediately recognize that they're going to be useful to them. So even though they're usually put on by private bodies, governments, especially in Europe, are eager initially to help fund them. And they see them as an opportunity to tout the virtues of their particular political and economic system. So at the time that international sports competitions begin, there's a correlation between public perception of the strength of a country and public perception of the health and physical fitness of a country. So you can see that there's a military dimension there, that if you have strong, healthy athletes winning competitions, the implication is that you have a greater, uh, you have greater health and fitness among your population and therefore greater military strength. And this is, this is the early use of, of sport diplomacy, is governments basically funding national teams to go out and, and be proxies for military might. To what extent can the Olympics and the World Cup be credited um, for sort of substantive ad advancement um, of either human rights or, or liberal ideals? And I wonder if maybe there is a preferred um, example of sports diplomacy that you may be able to draw on. Well, I think the, the basic answer that I would give, and, and I've just completed an edited volume that, that examined this question to some degree, I don't think the Olympics or the World Cup has helped advance human rights in any really significant way. They both cost an enormous amount of money, and they tend to result in the diminishment of human rights protections in the host cities or host nations where they take place. So they're forced evictions to make way for new construction, restrictions on free speech, and reduce capacity of governments to spend on social and economic goods because of the enormous costs of staging these events. And when, if you look at Brazil's hosting of the Men's World Cup in 2014, for example, there were huge protests around the enormous spending in a country that was undergoing an economic crisis. And at the idea that the um, International Soccer Federation, FIFA, was insisting that all the stadiums meet what they call the FIFA world standard. And people said, well, wait a second, our hospitals and schools don't meet world standards. And of course, then there's the 2022 Men's World Cup in, in Qatar, where an investigation by The Guardian predicted that thousands of migrant workers who are often mistreated would die building the sites for that uh, event. Now, there is one case where I would say the Olympics did a lot of good and that is in Seoul in 1988. That, that's a time when the Olympic Games helped transform a country from a dictatorship to a democracy, in part because the publicity that the Olympic Games brought to South Korea meant that it became much harder for the dictatorship to engage in repressing a protest movement and instead it ended up accommodating that protest movement, that movement for reform. Now there, there's more to it and in many ways the ingredients that made um, that transition possible in South Korea were unique. So sometimes people looked at Beijing in 2008 and said, oh, 
Beijing is hosting the Olympic Games. It's a dictatorship just like South Korea was. Maybe the Olympic Games will bring openness and integration into the world and transform China into a democracy. But in fact, the conditions present in South Korea were very different from China. And it's really, in many respects, a sort of one-off. It's a very good one-off, <laughs> a really um, powerful story of the Olympics having an incredibly positive effect on a country's development, uh, but it's not likely to be repeated. I guess the tough question is then, is it your view that the sports diplomacy, for lack of a better term, works, or, or that it's overshadowed by some of the negative aspects that you mentioned there, and also, I suppose, the, the self-interested intentions of, of states who seek to use it? Well, I guess I would say that sport diplomacy per se is neither good nor bad. It can be used uh, for positive ends or negative ends, depending, uh, you know, as, as all other forms of diplomacy can be too, depending on which, uh, which set of actors is using it for which ends. As to whether major international sports events, uh, we call them sports mega events in, in the, the scholarship, whether they can be forces for good is, I think, something that they're trying to work out right now because there's been an, absolute, an absolutely stunning explosion of interest in this question among, say, the International Olympic Committee and FIFA. Uh, again, the International Soccer Federation. It, just in the last two years, they've been involved in setting up advisory bodies, in meeting with human rights groups like Human Rights Watch. They've joined and helped set up a center for sports and human rights that's headed by Mary Robinson, the former UN Commissioner for Human Rights. They are doing forums uh, I was just at one in Buenos Aires, big one with thousands of people attending. They're really, um, you know, in, in some ways this is a very self-interested move on their part because they've been beset by corruption scandals. So turning toward idealism is a way to recoup some of their legitimacy and to, re to burnish their reputations. At the same time, they are, I think, quite genuinely interested in seeing how they can use their enormous power uh, at least to moderate the human rights costs of staging these enormous events. And there's certainly some hopefulness among people at Human Rights Watch and other groups that they will harness their power to the good. Excellent. It's a shame that we have to think at this stage about bringing our conversation to an end, but I wonder um, if you might have any final observations or anything that you think that we've missed in my questioning today. Well, I guess the one thing I'd say is I'd, I'd go back to our discussion of human rights. And you had initially suggested an interest in the link between the rise of human rights and the rise of democratic governments. It is true that the rise of human rights has coincided with the spread of democratic governments. Very hard to say exactly how that relationship has played out and whether there's a causal relationship. I guess I would suggest that it's a distressing time to be thinking about the relationship between human rights and the spread or health of democracy in today's world because, of course, democracy is in decline everywhere. 
arguably just as human rights is hitting its peak. And democracy is weakening and under attack in part because of a reaction against neoliberal globalization, which human rights has done nothing to moderate. And so I think one thing to consider as we think about the future of human rights is their relationship to inequality. We've seen um, tracking directly with the spread and the power of human rights as it has grown, the growth of inequality. And human rights has actually not said anything or had any um, tools to combat the growth of inequality. It actually doesn't really object to inequality per se. And so democracy is under threat, inequality is rising to unprecedented levels, and human rights is very powerful now. What that suggests is that human rights isn't a great way to protect democracy and certainly isn't a great way to combat inequality. Barbara Keese, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks again for having me, Cameron. Thank you for listening to episode nine of the Dyson House podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date as we prepare for season three in the new year. And if you haven't heard it already, be sure to go back through series one with Peter Bateman. You can also visit our website, internationalaffairs.org.au forward slash Victoria for upcoming events.